We're going to be, uh, well, it'll take us a while because there's a lot of very rich material in Chapter 4 of Philippians, but we're studying Philippians. Page 18 is where we're you're following your notes. I want to pick up um, with this word that we've seen in the book of, of Philippians, and it's really a favorite word of Paul's throughout his writings. In verse 18, and I want to contrast what he says in verses 18 and 19 with verses 20, and uh, I don't think it goes to 22. 21. Okay, and if you if you look, what he's talking about there, because this word walk, it's a metaphor, it's a figure of speech, because what it really means is how you live. I mean, he's not talking about you're going for a walk out along the sidewalk. That's not what he's really talking about. Walk is a metaphor for how you live your life. So, perhaps another way of thinking about this is whenever you see Paul, the Apostle Paul, using the word walk, we should think of that as the norm. Not extraordinary. Not, not the exception. But this is to be the norm. So what he's contrasting is the walk, and I, I'm taking a little liberty here, but in a way that's really what he's doing, the walk of the false teachers that he's warning the Philippians about <clears throat> versus the walk of the believer. Okay, And he's really contrasting the two here. And he's going to say five things about the walk of the fit false teachers He's not going to say five things. He's going to drive primarily on one key thought about the walk of the believer. And it's a, it's a remarkable contrast that he's setting up here. And I think it's really valuable for you and me today because we, we live in a, in a culture, particularly, let alone a whole world, but in a culture particularly, American culture, which, broadly speaking, is much more characteristic of this side than this side. Okay. So what I'd like to do is read uh, 18 through 21, read the entire passage, and then we're going to go back and kind of take it apart. So is everybody with me? Do you understand what I'm doing here? Yeah. And I'm keying in on the term walk. For many walk, of whom I've often said, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, and who set their mind on earthly things. Verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into the likeness or the conformity to the body of his glory. How is he going to do that? By the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. There's an awful lot there. But let's take a look at what he says in 18 and 19. Again, this fits with the larger theme of the book of Philippians. These are the false teachers. These are the people that are beginning to infiltrate the church at Philippi. And Paul's really concerned about that. So he's warning them. And we saw how, how he did that earlier in the chapter. He calls them dogs. Remember all those words and so on? So here he says, and I want you to see five things about them, five characteristics of their walk. First of all, what does he say about them? They're enemies of what? 
of the cross. Enemies of the cross. What does he mean by that? Hi, Dave. Okay, obviously you didn't hear that question, so... They don't agree with what people say about the cross, what Jesus has done, so they they, they now just fight against it. They don't believe it. Good, okay. There is either a rejection of the cross, Mm -hmm. or what else might there be? It's a works of grace. Yeah, there are other things we have to do besides put our faith in the cross. Mm -hmm. That is, put our faith in Jesus. So let's put it another way. This is certainly true of this group of people to whom Paul is addressing this warning. These are people, remember we gave them a name, the Judaizers? These are people who are saying, you have Jesus and his cross plus some other things. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to keep the feast days and all that. So it's, it would be somebody like in our day and age saying, well, I like Jesus. I like uh, what Jesus stands for. I like his cross. But that's not enough. You also need to do this and this and this. And when Paul, what Paul is saying, when you start adding anything to the cross, you're now an enemy of the cross. That's a strong way to put it, isn't it? I had lunch yesterday with a guy who's a, he's a good friend of mine. There's a lot of aspects of his life. But we were spending a lot of time, almost our whole lunch, just talking about Islam. And Islam is that. And I, I, I'm picking on that only because we know so much about it today because we hear about it. Islam is adding to Jesus. They believe in Jesus. They hold that Jesus is a great man because he's a prophet. But Jesus isn't enough. There's much, much, much more. And the way to get the clear understanding of the more is start finding out what Muhammad taught. So they're enemies of the cross. And again, I'm not just singling them out. That's just something that we are very familiar with today. Secondly, he says of them what? Their end is destruction. What does he mean by that? It could mean their personal destruction, or it could mean destruction of the church. It could be in terms of the effect. It could actually end up to be the destruction of the church. But probably more, although, and that is a very legitimate way to look at it, but perhaps it's more personal. What these guys are really doing as enemies of the cross is their end is predetermined. If you reject Christ... If you reject the message that he offers, the grace that he offers, the end is destruction. So it's, a, it's, it's an adamant statement. I mean, it's, it's um, maybe I shouldn't use that word. It's very categorical. You, there's not any lack of clarity what he's saying there. There's just no hope. If you reject the cross, there's no hope. The end is destruction. And thirdly, he says of them, whose God is their appetite. Now, that's a figure of speech. It, I mean, it really is. We, we would call it a euphemism, but you and I will just call it a figure of speech. What does it mean? Who, that God is their appetite. What does that mean? They're selfish. Okay. Selfish, self-centered, mm-hmm. self-indulgent. And you could fit, fit anything into that, couldn't you? I mean, you could make anything that is a part of life your appetite, and it becomes your quote-unquote God. So... When he says that, he's saying that, in effect, your God is your self-centered living. And, I mean, there are so many things you could dump into that. But let's put it in a very, very practical manner. You have replaced God 
as the center of your life. Instead of God being the center of your life, you're the center of your life. And you think, well, of course I'm the center of your life. If you're the center of your life and everything revolves around you and your self-indulgent, selfish, self-centered attitude is what drives you, that's what this is speaking of. Your appetite is your God. You are on the throne of your life trying to run it your way for your purposes to meet your selfish, self-centered ends. Many, many years ago, Frank Sinatra, I'm not going to sing it, but Frank Sinatra sang a very, very famous song that was, I, I think it was a hit, although I don't know for sure, but I did it my way. And if you look at the lyrics of that song, I mean, it's, it really is one of the most depressing songs I've ever heard. Because Frank Sinatra is just, in a sense, probably autobiographically, this is the way I've lived my life. I did it my way. And Paul is saying their walk is a walk of selfish, self-centered, self-indulgent living. Do you know anybody that lives like that today? That permeates Western civilization. It really does. Not just the United States, Europe. I mean, that's just... That's how we frame almost everything. I mean, advertising is built around that. Marketing is built around that. And the Apostle Paul, that's why he is talking about the false teachers, but you and I can broaden this in its application to someone that is living their life without Jesus. This is their life. Their enemies at the cross, their end is destruction, and their God is self-centered living. Hi, Matt. <laughs> did you, we did have classes. I couldn't believe that. I thought, what kind of wimps do well, we have in this class? <laughs> the email was kind of like we could have class. No, so it's, well, yeah, we didn't want to. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. But like the, I mean, I've traveled over Europe, and you go to these big cathedrals, and they're tourist attractions now, and you pay, or you go there. But they don't really have mass. They don't really have church. They're just kind of historic buildings. They're architectural yeah. Well, that's that's right. Is, is that kind of what can happen mm-hmm. to a church? And I, and I was, and always, uh, I read something in the paper. I think it was last year, but the biggest church in Lincoln, I think, it was a Presbyterian church, mm-hmm. and they closed it. It was the biggest church in the seventies, the eighties, the nineties, mm-hmm. and it just closed. Nobody goes there. And I just kind of wonder, how can you have like the biggest church, and then they put the wrong color carpet in, or you know what? People are fighting over the wrong color carpet, or how, how, how do you think that would go? Well, I think that, uh, I mean, the, the can of worms that you just opened and this Pandora's box, <laughs> I want to quick close it because I don't want to get into a, a discussion quite like that. But you are driving home a really important point. If you and your self-centered, self-indulgent, selfish living is the appetite that drives everything you do. There is no role for God in that. There is no role for the church in that. There is no, I mean, and I think that's one of the, the tragic consequences of that kind of thinking edging its way into the church, slowly, subtly, one of my favorite words, surreptitiously, but we don't talk like that, so... And it, it, it can be it can it can undermine everything that the church is supposed to represent. And there, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal during the holidays on the number of churches in Europe that are closing. 
It's extraordinary. Great churches, churches that have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of heritage, either associated with Roman Catholic or with Protestant Reformation, to close them. And I mean, these aren't small little tiny country churches that have 40 people. These are the massive cathedrals and some of the great landmarks. It's, it is really sad. And then he says, whose glory is their shame. <clears throat> now, let's think, again, it's a, that's a saying. It's a figure of speech. Whose glory is their shame. The key word is shame. What do you think he's saying by that saying, that figure of speech, whose glory is their shame? They receive the glory. I'm sorry? Themselves. They're receiving the glory for themselves. Okay. The glory, because he's using it's like it's like a it's like a satirical, cynical comment. Their own personal glory is what they are seeking, and that's shameful. Somebody else was. I was going to chime in something slightly different. I think uh, the, the things they're proud of is that are actually mm -hmm. shameful things. Is sure. what I kind of saw with that. Sure. Because these two are connected. No, I mean, you're absolutely correct. So it's a shameful, selfish glory. Okay. Because that's the key. It is. It is. It's an absolute shame what they have done in glorifying and elevating things that more than likely morally and ethically God regards as abominable, as repugnant. <clears throat> and then he says, finally, third, uh, fifthly, excuse me, they set their minds on earthly things. I won't write all that. What does he mean by that? I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, God created the physical world. He declared it to be good. God says, I want you to enjoy everything that I've created. You are my stewards over my world. I want you to be creative cultivators with me. I want you to do everything that you do to my glory. You're to work. You're to pursue your, your vocation with a passion where you're bringing glory to me. So what does he mean when he says they set their minds on earthly things? Joel? Excellent, Joel. That's it. If these four dimensions characterize their walk, then this is the final crowning category. They have no room for eternity. There's no eternal dimension to anything. For you, and for me, there is an eternal dimension to everything we do. Amen. It, because for, for you and me, once we come into a relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ, we start to see everything through that eternal perspective. And that's what he's saying they lack. Uh, Back to the motivation we were talking about, naming the senior already, uh, doing it my way. Mm. Absolutely. And that's a huge part to yeah, yeah. And again, it's, it, in a way, it's, it's kind of getting back to that simple but profound thought. You're on the throne. You're seeking your own glory. And that's it. 
what is it if I if I were to make not if I were I am now going to make this statement these five characteristics of a walk of a human being are all self-defeating. Would you agree with that? Why are they self-defeating? Is it too simple to say they're all bad for you? Or this, that's the general idea, but you're probably looking for something more specific. These are all bad things for you personally, spiritually. You're, 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 so think more about it. You're defeating. Well, you're, you're defeating well, okay. For uh, what you exist, uh, why okay. you want to be here, why would okay. you want to do these things to yourself uh, in a very okay. uh, unspiritual perspective? If these things characterize your life, um, and I'm not necessarily talking about a guy who or a gal who's a drunkard or a prostitute. I'm not necessarily talking about that, although I, obviously this kind of a uh, characterization would fit them. I'm talking about the person who's maybe a very successful businessman or a very successful businesswoman. I mean, they're given all the gusto they can to pursue their vocation and pursue it with a passion 24-7. That's their goal. They're achieving their goals. They're wealthy, etc. Why do you still say that's self-defeating? You mentioned some time ago, Jim, the person who said, I've, all my life, I've leaned my ladder against the wrong mm. wall. Yeah, one of my he friends said that. that point when he realized that. Mm. Yeah. It makes me think of the, the saying that, that you, uh, you might feel like you won the war, but you lost the battle. Oh. Mm. And you go through life, and you might feel like you've been very successful. I have everything that I want. I mean, mm-hmm. And it's, it's sad because you, you're only looking, I mean, you only have blinders on, and I can only see this much of it, but you're missing out on, on what, on the internal part of it, you know, on the, on the, on the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's uh, eerily suspicious uh, and similar to a bestseller that says you should live your best life now. Mm. Because it's temporally focused, uh, it's setting yourself up for your own idol, mm. uh, it's self-centered rather than serving, mm. uh, and it's self-defeating because mm. in the end you have truly chosen to live mm. what you thought was your best life, but unfortunately what could have been for you is mm. not, not right. Do you remember that old bumper sticker, he who has the most toys wins? Remember that? Sure. That's this perspective in a very clever saying, but no, that's not true. I mean, you know, I, this friend of mine that Fred was referring to, uh, he was a very, very successful man. He, he, he and I were having lunch, and he said, Jim, you know, I've made so much money. I don't need to make any more money. I can still make a lot more money. I don't need to make any more money. He'd come to faith in Jesus Christ, and his life was starting to be transformed. He said, I realize I've been leaning my ladder against the wrong wall. And by that, he didn't mean that success in his business was abominable to God. That's not what he meant by that. But his driving force was this stuff. And ultimately, this doesn't say. Remember we studied Ecclesiastes a couple years ago? King Solomon. That's what Solomon said. I mean, Solomon is probably, and, and I mean, you know, you, I guess we can debate that in terms of Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and all these guys. But he was probably the wealthiest man that ever lived in all of human history. But the point that Solomon makes is, I had the ability, with my wealth and my position and power and all that, to do anything I wanted. And I did everything I wanted. And what was his conclusion? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. 
the bottom line is it does not satisfy. So again, what Paul is doing here is he sent, he's warning the Philippians in this little church that this is what the false teachers are like. Don't listen to them. They are leaning their ladder against the wrong wall. So what's the, what's the contrast? The contrast is verse, 19, excuse me, verse 20 and 21. It's the contrast of the believer. And he uses some remarkable words here, terms that are very familiar to us, but they're, they're profound terms. And as we start this, I, I want you to think of an axiom. I want you to think of a principle. Future promise is to determine present behavior. Future promise is to, be, is to determine present behavior. That's why when I was studying for this, I decided that we're going to do the Thessalonian letters next. Because that's exactly what Paul does in those two letters. Look at what he says. For our citizenship is in heaven. And in my Bible, I circled earthly in verse 19, and heaven in verse 20 drew a line between them. There's the most significant contrast there is. The person who's not walking with the Lord Jesus is focused on the temporal, on the physical, and has no room for the eternal. You and I understand the eternal significance of everything. Because we're citizens of heaven. By the way, that this is an aside, has absolutely nothing to do, but that Greek word, citizenship, we get our word politics from that. Aren't you glad I told you that? <clears throat> Again, I don't know what you want to do with that, but it just, uh, anyway. But it's, it's, our citizenship is in heaven. That's, that's a profound concept. That's a profound thought. That's a profound axiom. What does that mean? Okay. Because that's our, our home isn't here, it's in heaven. Okay, our home isn't here. What does that mean? Practically speaking, Joel. Well, just that the things we accumulate or the yeah. positions we hold, the titles we have, whatever is, it's all going to go away. Yeah, yeah, we're on a journey. In one of my other classes, we're studying First and Second Peter, and in First and Second Peter, Peter constantly uses the term "your aliens." That's how we translate it. But your aliens, you know, for you and me in the twenty, an alien is the little green man that comes from Mars, and our, or what was that, Steven Spielberg, ET, or something like that. But all he's saying is what what Joel was saying. We understand the temporal nature of things on earth. The permanent things are in heaven. Now, the, the one thing we can't do with that is say, well, then the physical things don't matter. The temporal things, no, that's the wrong conclusion. Because the temporal things do matter. Remember, God created the physical world, God created and said they're good things. 
in First uh, uh, Timothy chapter four, verse four, enjoy all the things that God has given you. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He wants you to enjoy your life, but enjoy it as a gift from Him, 